Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 8, Episode 3. In this week's episode, we covered the autopsies of Lloyd and Agnes Courtney. We went through all the medical evidence to find some pretty surprising results, at least for me. Uh, I was shocked to find out that the the cast iron skillets did not cause even a single fracture in either of the Courtney's and that the murder weapon turned out to be simply the two and a half inch paring knife. So there was a lot of new information. The crime scene is becoming clearer and clearer. I am joined today remotely via Zoom, hopefully for the last time, I believe next week, uh, given our new our governor's new orders, we are going to be back in the studio together again. But for now, remotely, I'm joined by Mike Bussing. Hey, guys. And by Mr. Zach Weaver. That's me. All right. We're going to have a quick break here for the ads. And uh, before we get started with listener questions, I want to talk just a little bit about a situation that is really affecting our country in a lot of ways. And that is the murder of George Floyd by uh, a police officer in Minneapolis. So we're going to do a quick break and then I'm going to talk about that just for a few minutes. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think that we would be doing a great injustice if I didn't take this opportunity just to take a few minutes to talk about what's going on in our country right now. I'm sure every single one of you is aware of the fact that a man named George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis last week. Uh, the circumstances around it were basically that he was pulled out of a car by a police officer uh, because he was suspected of, I believe it was a forgery charge, writing a bad check or forging a check. Uh, the police officer claimed that Floyd was resisting. Surveillance footage later showed that he was not. But even if he had been resisting, at the point where we saw videos by bystanders, the there was four police officers, one of whom had uh, Mr. Floyd handcuffed behind his back, face down on the street. And he was kneeling with his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck. And the, you know, the bystanders began filming. And it, it was it's a tragic, horrible scene. 
George Floyd was was pleading with the officers very respectfully, I might add, to please get his knee off his neck. He kept saying, I can't breathe. Please, officer, I can't breathe. Uh, it was the, one of the most heartbreaking and disgusting things uh, that I've ever had the misfortune of witnessing. Uh, the officer is seems to have a smirk on his face. His hands are in his pockets. There's, as I said, even if Mr. Floyd had been resisting prior to that, at that point, the threat had been neutralized, even though there actually was no threat. Continued for, I've, I've heard people say five minutes, I've heard seven minutes, I've heard nine minutes. However long it took, he stayed there with his knee on George Floyd's neck until he eventually passed away. Amidst that, and of course this was a white police officer and George Floyd is a, is a black man. And throughout the process, besides George Floyd pleading for his life, the bystanders were pleading with the police officers to let him breathe, to let him up. And as I said, it resulted in George Floyd's death, uh, which has spiraled our country into what is both a very upsetting and frustrating situation, but at the same time, I feel like it's a necessary situation. Now, there, there's two elements to this. Uh, there have been protests, not just in Minneapolis, but around the country. But those protests have also been accompanied by who I want to make a distinction that these are not the protesters. Opportunists have taken advantage of the protests and of the chaos that's going on in these in these cities from, you know, we've seen them in Atlanta, Chicago, New York City, L.A. They're everywhere and have taken to looting and destroying businesses and lighting police stations on fire. I saw on the news this morning a long list of police officers that have been shot, attacked, run over by cars uh, all throughout the country, and which sadly that has taken over the news cycle. The 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 violence and the looting and the the rioting and the assaulting on police officers, and and I believe it's taking away from the the issue here, which is a, a systematic problem that we have with our police force. And I, I want to preface this by saying that I am a supporter of police. I do not believe that all police officers are bad or that they are all racist. But at the same time, this situation should not have been allowed to happen. And and the fact that it happened with three other police officers standing by watching it happen tells me that there is a big, big problem with the Minneapolis Police Department. That this was, you know, the, the only reason we we know the details about this is because the bystanders filming it. But to start with, the the officer that murdered Mr. Floyd was he's he's a, a disgusting human. I don't know anything about the guy, but I know that he has no regard for human life. And clearly, the attack on on Floyd was based on his, on his race. But I, I also hold accountable the three officers that were standing there that allowed that to happen, that at no point said, hey, get up or pulled him off. And, it, and that's a systematic problem within the Minneapolis Police Department. I think it's a systematic problem with police departments around the world. One thing that has been eye-opening for me through all of this is the importance of the Black Lives Matter movement. I I am almost ashamed to admit that I was I was one of the people that as people would 
you know, every time something like this would happen would be, you know, holding up their Black Lives Matter signs or, or hashtags on social media or, or wherever they're displaying Black Lives Matter. There was a time when I, when I would respond to that with, yes, but all lives matter. And it, it almost seemed like the movement was counterproductive to me. And it's come to a point where I finally realized what that movement really means in the fact that yes, all lives matter, but our lives, the, you know, is the three of us sitting here right now, all straight white males, we are not threatened right now. Our lives do matter, but we are not threatened. If you're listening to this and you're not a, a part of this, this this minority population that is being afflicted, that is being attacked in many ways. Your life does matter, but your life is not threatened right now. And and the, the black lives around this country are. And I, I I wish the frustrating part for me with the protests is is number one how they've been infiltrated by these opportunists. Which again I want to I want to I want to make very clear that these are two separate groups of people, but. I sit here in the Midwest wanting to get involved and wanting to do something, and I just don't know what the solution is. I don't know what, you know, what, what are the protests hoping to accomplish? There's, there's not a, a police policy nationwide that says attack and kill black men. That, that, that officer was not operating within, within policy, but at the same time, it just keeps fucking happening. It keeps happening all over the place. And and something needs to change. I know for I, I for sure, uh, laws like stop and frisk need to be taken off the books. We as non minorities can't understand what it's like to not be able to walk down the street, to to hang out with our friends without being harassed, embarrassed, and attacked by police officers. Those practices need to stop. But I I don't know how to fix or change this. All I'm really wanting to do right now is to express my feelings that I am in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, and I know that that Mike and Zach both stand with me on that, and that whatever we can do to help, we need to do to help. But I also do not think the answer is to attack all police officers. I think that if this is going to change, what we need are the good cops to stand up. We need good people good police officers, good mayors, good governors to stand up and help us put a stop to this. So it's not just the people in the street that are trying to protest to make a change. All we can do is push the people who have the authority and power to make those changes to make them. And and the last thing that I want to touch on is from just a, a legal analysis point of view is there have been a lot of people that the officer that that killed George Floyd has been charged with uh, a, a crime that I didn't know existed. I did a little research on it. It only exists in three or four states. But he was charged with third-degree murder and manslaughter. And that also caused more rioting, more civil unrest, people being upset that that wasn't enough. He should have been charged with more. I, I, I spent a lot of – and that was my initial reaction too. But I spent a lot of time – researching this and I, I just want to at least to our audience make my opinion on this clear i think that was the right move by the prosecutor so what third degree murder is and again it only exists in like pennsylvania florida minnesota and maybe new mexico is a, a level of murder where someone's intent 
may not have been to kill the person, but that they were uh, inflicting a dangerous act that was intended to cause harm that resulted in murder. So, you know, first degree murder we know is basically premeditated murder. Second degree murder is is murder without premeditation. And this third degree murder is someone was doing something dangerous and violent to someone that resulted in their death. The reason I think the prosecutor did the right thing is, is our emotions run high and we want to say this is capital murder. This is first degree murder. When all this dust settles, this man is going to be in a court of law with a judge and a jury and is going to, is going to be prosecuted. And whatever the prosecutor charges him with is what has to be proven without the emotions based on the facts of the case in order to convict him. There is ample evidence to convict this officer of third-degree murder. A prosecutor can very clearly go before a jury and show that the act that he of, of kneeling on George Floyd's neck was a dangerous act, and it was violent, and it resulted in his death. And it carries a penalty in the state of Minnesota of, I believe, for up to 40 years, or it might be up to 25 years, depends on, I, I'm trying to, there's different states had different sentencing guidelines on that. And uh, he was also charged with manslaughter, which, which can tack on top of that. Now, let's look at, say, say the prosecutor instead charged him with second-degree murder. That means that there was an intent to murder, but there was not premeditation. If they go into court with that, when the emotions are settled and we're looking at legal guidelines, what will happen is he will be acquitted because they will not be able to prove there is no way to prove that his intention was to kill George Floyd. And then what happens is that officer walks free. Same is true of first-degree murder. So we have to understand sometimes when we, when we want, because of our emotions, for, for someone to be charged uh, more harshly, that that overcharging someone oftentimes will result in an acquittal. So I think the prosecutor charged that officer correctly. And then, and then another feeling people have is that the other three officers should also be charged. I don't know. I I, agree. I I find them culpable. I don't know what, again, emotions aside, what legal precedents could be used to charge those officers. Uh, for someone who just stood by and watched a crime happen, I don't know exactly how, to, how they could be charged. They were fired, um, and, and that absolutely should have happened. I don't know what else should happen with them. In regards to how to deal with the civil unrest, one thing that is really frustrating about this is how hyper-politicized this has become. Both sides have drawn lines in the sand, the Republicans and the Democrats, and they all have their set positions, and it's become a mudslinging contest for you know the, the Democrat mayors and governors that aren't handling it properly, and the Republican governors and mayors that aren't handling it properly, and the president isn't handling it properly. And I, I get the outrage that people have, but my frustration is that all of this, the looting, the rioting, the, the, the politicizing is taking away. And this is what always fucking happens. It's taking away from what needs to happen, which is we need to unite together and help to make a change. And to be honest with you, 
I don't know the situation we're in right now. I don't know what could possibly be the best move to handle these situations. You have peaceful protesters that needed to be need to be afforded the right to protest. So you want to back off. You want police forces to back off. You also don't want another situation that's going to elevate the problem. You don't want police officers come coming in to try to stop these protests, which might result in another violent act, which is going to make the problem even worse. So I understand backing off. But then you have looters and rioters. We have one of our transcribers, Pamela Wetsby, uh, lives in, I believe, in Minneapolis. Um, I could be wrong about that, but I've seen her post where her neighborhood was being lit on fire. There were people being shot. There was uh, violence and rioting and looting everywhere. There were lighting buildings on fire. And those residents, those people, I've seen the people on the news that business owners of all races, religions, and creeds having their businesses destroyed, looted, and burned down. Those people deserve to be safe. Part of the police job, what they're supposed to do is to protect those people. So then you have a situation where you need strong force to stop this from happening, to protect the other people of these cities. But then, but then you have the conflict of the fact that there are also peaceful protesters. The point I'm getting at is I think that we need to stop hyper-politicizing this. We need to stop focusing on what we think everyone is doing wrong because the reality is I don't think there's a right way to handle this. I don't know that there is a right way, and I'm not the smartest guy in the world. So what I would like to do now before we move into our discussion on Season 8, Episode 3 of the podcast here is offer us up a moment of silence for us all. We have, we are blessed enough to have a large variety of listeners. We have people listening to this podcast right now from just about every country in the world. We have, we have people that are, are a part of and, and have faiths that uh, span from Christianity to Wiccan and everything in between atheist agnostic we have we we have a diverse crowd and so what i want to do now before we move into the normal content of our program today is to offer 60 seconds of silence and i would ask that all of you whatever you do to send good vibes to the country to the people in charge to do it if you're a prayer pray if you are a meditator meditate if you if you just just want to just send some positivity, whatever you want to do, but I want to offer 60 seconds of silence for us to consider how we can help to make a difference here, and then we're going to get on to our, our regularly scheduled program. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Quote you've all heard me say many, many times before. Uh, it used to be a part of our intro. It was a quote uh, attributed to a man named Edmund Burke, which is the only thing necessary for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing, which in our intro I had edited to is for good people from around the world to do nothing. So let's all not do nothing. Let's do something. Let's do it peacefully. Let's do it positively. And let's try to do it productively. And with that being said, let's move on to the content that we have in front of us. Thank you all for giving me that space to to speak my mind on the topic. So before we get the questions started, I actually, this was a really fascinating episode to me. There was a lot of things that I learned that I wasn't expecting. Like you talked about, the fact that the blunt force trauma injuries had nothing to do with the death or or at least didn't cause the death right yeah i was i was shocked when i was re- and i was you know i was reading through the testimony and then cross referencing to the the autopsy report when i was writing the episode and i'm just he's going through injuries and i'm like where are the skull fractures where's the brain injuries and then i'm flipping through the autopsies and i'm like there weren't any you know there was um there was subgaleal hematomas which is which is basically bleeding on the skin outside of your scalp but nothing in the brain so i was yeah i was i was stunned to find out that that the pants actually didn't cause anything besides superficial wounds it makes me think of two things actually one of which kind of makes me a huge nerd but the other one is is thinking about how brittle those pans must have been if they're breaking without causing fracture but the second thought i had and this is where I go, kind of go off and people are going to get away from me here in a second, is it makes me think of professional wrestling. And, and I'll get to why I say this. Okay. In professional wrestling, those chair shots, when you see a wrestler get hit by a chair, they're mm-hmm. really getting hit by the chair, but they're getting hit by the flattest part because it dissipates the energy. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're not getting injured. So that's kind of what I was thinking about with the pan. If, if you're hitting them with that pan, but you're hitting them across the the broad bottom of the pan, that energy is being dissipated across that, which is probably a reason why there's not the fractures. Now, if you were to take that pan and turn it 90 degrees and hit them with like the brim, right, or the the lit or the the piece where the the wall, the sidewall, and the bottom come together, mm-hmm. that piece is going to be a lot harder, and you're probably going to get fractures. It, you know, it, it leaves me so perplexed because I keep thinking, well, this has to be a very strong person to swing those pans. That many times, you know, the, uh, Daniel Rohr, one of our listeners, put on the fan page a video of her using some cast iron skillets to bash, um, I think, a head of cabbage and some and a watermelon. And I was just watching thing, and she looks exhausted swinging those pans. So you think this person must be strong and in shape to swing the pans like that. And then you're like, well, but they didn't swing them hard enough to cause any injuries or any 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 fractures. So maybe they're kind of weak. But then it's like, but they swung them hard enough to break the pans, which is why mm-hmm. there's no injuries. I'm just, it's just, this crime scene is, it, it's, it's nuts. It's, I, I, I was going to say bananas, but that's kind of topical for the episode. So, you know, and the other thing you talked about was why someone would go back for more pans. Mm-hmm. And, and the only thing that I could think of is maybe the person didn't understand that they weren't causing the damage that they thought they were causing. Wait, right. But, you know, I, I thought about that, too. And, and understand, too, any of the behavioral stuff I'm talking about or I'm kind of spitballing in that. Episode, you know, I talked about, you know, why would someone run this way and why wouldn't she do this? These are all just hypotheticals. I've always I've always said that you can't 
you can't base what you would have done on and how somebody else would react. I'm just thinking through uh, behaviorally speaking. But but all I'm thinking about with the pans is you grab a pan and you bash it over somebody's head so hard that it shatters. You know, might feel good if you're trying to you know cause violence and trying to hurt someone. But then when you see them just continue to run, they don't go down. They're not unconscious. They just, they just continue to keep fighting. It's to me, it'd just be like, well, this isn't a good weapon to use. But the whole none of the weapons make sense. You open a knife drawer and grab the smallest knife in the drawer. You're using frying pans that are busting apart as you're hitting them. You got a room full of of glass figurines and lamps and all kinds of things. Instead, you grab a big heavy table and carry it across to use as a weapon. Like I, all of it is none none of it. I can't compute what this person is thinking. It's such an odd crime scene for me because usually by this point, I can look at the crime scene, the medical evidence and say, okay, I have a pretty good idea of how this attack went down. Mm-hmm. And in this one, it's like, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I can't understand why the killer made the decisions they made. I can't understand what order things happened in. I can't understand. There's just, there's just so many questions still. Do we ever have a clarification of what, the the tripod was i mean is he basically thinking that it's a table leg or it so it it sounds like he clarified it later in the testimony the tripod is so that there were wooden table legs obviously attached to the table and then there were like metal brackets that attack that that went from the legs to the table also and those metal brackets are what he was referring to as the the tripod where he could he could basically take that piece of metal and compare it to one of the wounds on the head and, and can tell that that's what caused that. That's a strange choice of weapon as well. The table leg? Well, the, that, that metal bracket. And if that's well, the piece. I, I, it was still attached to the table. So essentially they were hitting him with the table leg, but there was still a metal bracket on the end of it. Okay. And then how the table legs get broken off? Did they carry the table over? It, all four legs are broken off. And then smash it on the ground? And then and then grab the legs. Did they rip a leg off? And yeah, I don't. I I have. I just. I do. I don't know. I I don't understand quite yet what was going on there. And the last thought I had before we'll get into listener questions was we talked about Lloyd, you know, having the issue of you know obviously he has defensive wounds, so he was fighting with the assailant, mm-hmm. and it said that you know possibly he wouldn't be able to subdue the assailant, but if it's his daughter. Maybe he's trying not to, you know, he does, he's, even though she's attacking him, you know, he is trying to still protect her, trying not to hurt her as he stops her. Yeah. My understanding is it's not uncommon for a male victim that's being attacked by a, maybe a female family member that they'll be hesitant to really fight back. So that that's definitely something that we need to consider, but that's, again, that's not, there, there comes, you know, that that was an argument that was made in the the Sandy Melgar case as well. Was that well, maybe the reason he was Jamie Melgar was was overtaken by his killer was because it was his wife, and he didn't want to, you know, shoot his wife. But you know, there, it, it dealt, but on that that level of attack was very different. You know, we're, we're with um, with Jim Melgar, he was, you know, he was hit hard. He had skull fractures. He was he was beaten. He was stabbed. He was nude. He was tied up. You know, mm-hmm. so, you know, so we can't really tell the uh, other than, you know, the ligature marks and stuff, how hard he was fighting. 
because he was he was unable to. Whereas Lloyd, we look at and see, well, he was he looks like right up until the point where he died, he was capable of fighting. You know, he he had been you know hit on the head. It was a it was a it was a bloody mess, but he wasn't you know there there was no there was no injury to the brain at all, indicating that he would have been unconscious at any any point in time. Um, so that, that's definitely something to consider that it could be someone that. Um, could be his daughter, like the state says, or it could be um, any. It doesn't even have to be female. Any family member, um, or a close friend, or we we just don't know enough about the situation. But it's definitely something we need to think about. All right, this has been some pretty good discussion. Let's bring the listener questions into this now. Our first question comes from Sarah. Do you think it's possible that Agnes and Lloyd were attacked at the same time by two perpetrators? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's possible. What, what what I keep coming back to is their attacks were so similar. They seem to be carried out by the same person. But you know, and then you know we have the medical examiner, Doctor Pirwani, saying that all of the stab wounds and cutting wounds are consistent with the knife, the paring knife that was found in in Lloyd's pant leg uh, on the note. But we have to understand also that doesn't mean that knife caused all those wounds. It just means that knife could have caused all those wounds. You know, that it was, you know, if you had a, you know, it was a two and a half inch blade. So if you had a stab wound that was six inches deep, you would say, well, that had to be a different knife. Uh, but all of them were within the parameters of that knife. So it, it, it's possible. I think, you know, Zach and I were chatting yesterday. He always said, could have, I think it was, I think you had said something like to the extent of, well, it could have been, what if one person had the pans and another person had the knife? You know, so it could have been two different people. But, you know, that, that's another. That's another confusing part of the case. Who was killed first? Was Lloyd already down when Agnes came in? Was Agnes napped him? In my opinion, I think the evidence certainly indicates that Agnes was in the back room napping. I, I, uh, as a matter of fact, I want to read a, a, a comment on the Truth and Justice main Facebook page by a listener named Brianna Anderson. Uh, now, so I've had several people, things have gone both ways. We've had call ins, we've had emails and messages. Uh, from quote good Southern women talking about their napping practices, you know, in, in regards to Agnes's niece saying that you know it's a normal thing for them to turn the you know to pull a, a pillow out of the closet, turn the bed up from the bottom, lay sideways across the bed to nap. That way you don't mess up the bed. Um, I've had a lot of people say I am a Southern woman and I've never heard anything about that. That's crazy. Uh, and then other people say that it's it's not so. Where I've landed on this is uh, I don't think it it affects your goodness as a Southern woman uh, one way or the other. But what we're not looking for is does every single person do, do this, but is it a practice that some people do? Like, does it make sense that Agnes would have done that? And what Brianna wrote in was this. She said, okay, the bed and the napping thing. I am not a Southern woman, but my grandma was. A Texas lady who was president of her local Republican Women's Association. Decorative pillows always at the head of the bed. Not only is napping along the foot of the bed normal in our family, but considered good practice. For a midday nap, you would never want to be caught unawares by a visitor, so you don't undress or even slip between the sheets. You just fold back the comforter and sleep lightly on top of the sheets, which remain tightly tucked. Then you can easily jump up, rearrange the comforter, and answer the phone or door. This is so normal that I even napped my baby this way. It was easy to roll up a towel at the edge so that he wouldn't fall off, and I could set him down while I folded laundry or cleaned the room. I am 100% convinced that Agnes was napping. So, 
again, that's not saying every person does this, but what I was really looking for is, is this a common practice for some people? And according to this listener and several others, it is it is something that is commonly done. It, it is a well-known thing, not that everybody knows about it, but people do do this. And looking at the bed and the position of the pillow, all of that indicates to me, along with a lot of the medical and forensic evidence that we've seen, that Agnes was, in fact, napping. So then, how does that work? Lloyd's watching TV, Agnes is napping, who's attacked first, and why doesn't the other person hear them? People have asked if they were hard of hearing. I have no evidence that they were hard of hearing. You definitely, I don't know, don't know how heavy of a sleeper Agnes was, and I don't know how loud the TV was out where Lloyd was watching. They were at opposite ends of the house, but it that's a lot of noise for one or the other not to have heard if there was only one person. Well, the other thing that comes to mind, if there was only one person and she was napping, would be that it would almost have to be personal because they would have to know she was there. If it was an outside perpetrator, you wouldn't necessarily know that there was somebody napping in the back room. Right. That's a good point. Or, you know, it could have been the attack on Lloyd happened and she slept through it. And then they're going through the, you know, through the rest of the house to burglarize it or whatever they're doing. And they find her back there. Or I, I don't know. There's any number of scenarios. But see, with that scenario, the, the attacks look very similar. Mm-hmm. So they, to me, if it was they were burglarizing the house, the second attack, whoever it may have been, would have looked different than the first attack. Just my opinion. I, you know, that's just my thinking on it. So my thoughts are that Lloyd was definitely killed first and Agnes second. I said the word definitely. It's definitely not a definitely. But my thoughts on it are because of the stab wound in Agnes's back. That leads me to believe that because uh, you know, we 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 don't know. It looks like the attack on Lloyd began with the frying pan to the head while he was on the couch. So that beating occurred. We go from there. Looks like at least another hit when he was in standing in the living room, which shattered the pan. Then the person grabs the the table and hits him with the table. You know, chases him down, hits him with the table. Going into the kitchen to get a knife and come back. I don't. I don't know what to think about that, but you know his attack ends with him being uh, stabbed in the neck, and then the uh, which I can't believe I was tells you with you know, as I messaged Mike last week I was writing and recording that episode at eleven o'clock at night last Thursday because I had a funeral to go to on Friday, and I wrote the the coup de grace <laughs> uh, wound, which is a, a coup de gras. Believe it or not, I've never seen that uh, phrase typed out. I've only ever heard it. In my my state of mind at that point, it was coupe de grassi. But the uh, the 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 slicing of Lloyd's throat after he was already down. So we know that the killer had the knife in their hands by that point. I think it's just a hunch, but I think that I think the attack on Agnes likely began with her napping and someone coming up behind her and stabbing her in the back with that knife. Which would indicate that you know the whole attack on Lloyd happened while she was back there nap- napping, which would give some credence to your your thought, Zach, that it would have to be someone personal that knew she was back there napping. Mm-hmm. You know, and and she did have blunt force trauma wounds as well. Am I not? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. That? Yeah, the, the the stab in the back was such a short blade; it was superficial. So then, why would you go back and get? It's it's so perplexing to me. I I'll, I'll, like I'm picturing yeah the whole thing is perplexing and none of this is fact this is me thinking out loud but all I can think of is they come in with a knife and a pan mm-hmm. 
and because that's what they're you and she's in there sleeping and they stab her and of course that wakes wakes her up and she turns around and then they are smacking her with the pan. But again, there was two pans used in there. Yeah. So at what point do they go back? And like you said, if the attack on Lloyd happened first and they didn't know, I feel like they would have left the weapons there. And the the weapons that were used on Agnes would have been different weapons in that room once they realized she was there. Yeah, that's true. They wouldn't have walked back to the bedroom carrying a weapon if they didn't think anybody else was home. Mm-hmm. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean somebody. It could have been somebody watching the house. It could have been someone who snuck in the garage when Agnes pulled in. You know, there's there's a lot of ways for someone to know that there are two people inside the house when they, when they went inside. But yeah, I don't know. Still pretty baffling. Yeah, so for whatever it's worth, like my theory is it was an assault that turned into a murder after they were both unconscious. Yeah, but there's no evidence they were unconscious. There's nothing to make them unconscious until the stab wounds, which is crazy because, I mean, you've seen the crime scene photos with me. It looks like such a horrific scene, but that was all superficial wounds. There wasn't a skull fracture. There wasn't a concussion. There was no brain bleeding, nothing, no brain swelling. They were fully conscious until they bled out from the cuts on their necks. But on Mike's point, too, let's say that Lloyd is hit and goes down. Now, he's not unconscious, but does the killer realize he's not unconscious? And then maybe they go attack Agnes at that point and then come back to Lloyd, kind of like we talked about in a theory before. Well, I think that um, maybe, man, I don't know. I mean, I was thinking like if that happened, he wasn't unconscious. He would just very quickly dial 911. He never made the call. You know, so he, he was, uh, the phone cord was cut before he could even get the call made. So unless he was faking, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. This is, uh, this is one of, one of the harder ones that we've looked at. The hardest, for sure. You look at, you look at like, like Elnora Griffin's crime scene. That was a complicated, nasty crime scene, but we were able to trace blood drops and every little element of the room and piece together exactly what happened. And this one, it's like, Every time I think I've got it figured out, I find something else that confuses me even more. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Nick says, could Agnes have been running to the back to get a weapon? Did they have guns in the house? And if so, where were they located? Yeah, I, I don't think that's what she was doing because there was a gun in the house. As far as we know, there was only one gun in the house and it was kept in Lloyd, the, the bedroom that was kind of Lloyd's office. It was in the the desk right next to the dresser with the drawer open. So, you know, presumably Agnes would know where that gun was kept. If she was going for the gun, she would have went to that room, which again indicates to me more that she was napping when this all happened. And, and, and can we talk real quick, your thoughts on uh, all of us have grandmothers and mothers. I, I wonder, would Agnes go in the back room? This, there's a, I, there's a lot of evidence that, seems to support the state's theory. There's no denying that. There's also a lot of evidence that doesn't. If their daughter was home, was at their house visiting them, would Agnes go in the back room and take a nap and Lloyd sit down on a couch and start watching TV with their daughter there? I think it depends on how often she's around. 
You know, if it's if it's a normal occurrence for her to be around, then it's just it's second nature. Like you just go about your life. However, you know, if it's not a common occurrence for her to be around, then, yeah, you would probably stay awake and spend more time with her. But if she's there every day or every other day, you know, it, it, you just go about your life how you'd be. If we go to my grandparents' house now, a set of my grandparents we see often, my grandmother would go take a nap. Like, it's not unusual. Would she? Okay. See, because like, my, I'm thinking of my, gra- my grandparents are all gone, but like, I have never, ever, ever seen my grandparents take a nap when I was at their house with my parents visiting, ever. And my, you know, you know, my parents are, are pushing 70 now, you know, close to the age of the, the Courtney's and I'm over there a lot, but never, never in a million years would my mom say, well, I'm going to go take a nap while I was over there. Uh, which again, it's one of those things is it's anecdotal. That's just my fan, but I'm just curious what your thoughts, Mike, I mean, have you ever, any of your family ever go take a nap while you're visiting? I spend a lot of time with my family. Just about every weekend, every Sunday, I go see my grandparents and my uncles, and just about every Sunday after we eat, my grandpa will go take a nap. So, okay, so there, yeah, so there we go. Yeah, I think if it's just commonplace, you know, if it becomes commonplace, then it's it's just life as normal. Yeah, it could be. You know, I I was just kind of basing the question on when I, when I spoke with the niece of of Agnes, you know, that that she said they would never, they were very old fashioned, whatever, and that they would never. Even sit down and watch TV when they had when when their daughter was there, much less take a nap. But that again, it's it's all all of this is anecdotal. We need to find evidence. Evidence is going to have to solve this. The other thing now that we're on this is is we don't really know Agnes's temperament or how she would handle things. Now I can say out of my my two living grandmothers that they would act very differently had they come out on a scene like this. You know, had, had they come on. I, my one set of grandparents had my grandfather been murdered and my grandmother come in. She's probably just going to lock up and do absolutely nothing. And on the other hand, the other side, that grandmother would have gone to him, would have tried to help him. So I, I think we just really don't know her temperament and how she would react. As far as her, like, go if she walked in and found Lloyd laying there dead. Yeah. Whether she would lock up, whether she would go for help, whether she would go to him. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I. In my mind's eye, which is, you know, take that for what it's worth, I just can't see a reaction for somebody who's been married for 50 years not to drop down to their spouse, you know, or, or you know, freeze up, whatever, but not just run away unless they were as an immediate threat right there. Um, but there also doesn't seem to be evidence that there was an immediate threat right there. You know, like I said, in my opinion, a lot of the evidence indicates that she was, in fact, in the back napping when, when the attack occurred. But then the groceries are confusing, too. You know, why are the groceries not? Why, why didn't the groceries get put away? Or was it, you know, she comes in and I could totally see this happening in definitely Zach's house with, with your wife coming home and saying, you know, I'm going to go lay down. Zach, put these groceries away. And you're going, OK. And then the, gro- <laughs> and then the groceries are still there. <laughs> yeah, 100 percent. Yeah, 100 percent. Kimberly says, what do you make of the fact that both autopsies list posterior dependent lividity when Agnes was obviously prone for several hours? During the video footage, the alarm clock in the bedroom says 11.50 p.m. and the bodies are still present. I understand that fixed lividity can take up to 12 hours, but even if it hadn't occurred at the time the bodies were moved, shouldn't there be partial lividity on Agnes's front side? I feel like this could play into approximate time of death. There's a there, there's a lot of factors there, and I should look at it again what what I because I didn't I didn't think about the the timing of the body still there. That's a very 
that's why we asked our listeners to engage in the investigations. I didn't notice the time on the clock when the when that video was taken because my thoughts were simple that it, it takes you know a long time up to 12 hours you know at least 6 to 8 hours before um lividity will fix uh meaning in, in this for most of you this review for those of you that aren't familiar lividity is when the blood from your body after you die pools gravity settles it to the lowest point for up to usually around 12 hours depending on a lot of conditions it, you know the 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 blood might settle and will cause a purple discoloration of the skin but then if you say like in Agnes's case what I assumed was when she was flipped over to put into the body bag if the lividity hadn't fixed yet it would then shift and go down to her back uh and and then settle there it, when it becomes fixed it it's when it doesn't matter so it, say she had been laying face down for 12 hours that clock is a big clue actually this is just i'm obviously thinking this through as i'm as i'm talking uh but yeah by 12 hours lividity should be fixed so um once it's fixed that would mean that of course she was on her on, on her stomach she was laying prone that if she was flipped over onto her back that the lividity would stay the purplish discoloration of her skin on the front side of her would remain purple after she was flipped over onto her back because it had fixed. What we know from the autopsy, we know two things. One, that she was laying face down. And we know, two, that when the autopsy was performed the next day, the lividity was on her back, that she she had uh, the rear lividity, meaning she was laying on her back when it fixed. Now, if that alarm clock is accurate, that it was 11.50 p.m. when she was still laying face down, that would be an indicator that she was that she was not killed before noon, probably one o'clock. So that so we're coming up on midnight. So let's just say noon. If she was killed before noon or at noon, and she laid face down until midnight, that's twelve hours before her body was flipped over. That lividity really should have fixed by then, and she would still have frontal fixed lividity, even though she was rolled onto her back. The fact that it all all of the blood pool shifted to her back when she was flipped over is an indicator that she was killed much later in the day. That's a big, 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 big uh, find. And I need to look through the crime scene video, see if there's any other clocks um, or if we can find any way uh, with any kind of definity exactly what time she was finally flipped over and removed by the medical examiner. That is that's huge. I mean, I, I was aware of the fact that she was flipped over and the, and the lividity shifted, but I did not think to look at the clock in the crime scene. That And that is why. We have the Truth and Justice Army and our listeners. That could be a that that could be a massive find right there. Blake says, longtime listener, first time commenter, with the amount of blood being dispersed in the attack, how do we not have more footprints and transfer in the house? Seems similar to the Melgar case where it seems multiple people, a high amount of criminal sophistication, or an extensive cleanup would be involved in not leaving a traceable path out to the house or to the cleanup site. You know, it's, it's a good question. I don't know that I have an answer for it. it. It did seem like in the crime scene video that you can see some spots where it appears someone had stepped in blood and then stepped, you know, and, and made another step where they transferred that that blood pattern. But, you know, there there was a lot of blood, but it was pretty local. So, like, in Agnes's case, most of the blood was on the bed. There's some on the floor. Most of it's on the bed. In Lloyd's case, most of the blood, there there's a there's a pretty good trail of blood. In a couple spots along the path from the living room to the di- dining room, 
Most of the blood, though, is where he was found dead. So there, there's there's plenty of space through the house is what I'm getting at for someone to walk through without stepping in any of the blood. And also, I just don't think that, that Gas did a very good job of documenting where the blood was at. I mean, he says that he did luminol that he didn't remember doing. And then we have no we have no photos of that. We have no video of it to to get a better idea of any blood spatter pattern. And we're going through forensics this week. And as I'm starting to dig through that, I'm hoping that we have maybe a blood spatter pattern um, expert coming in to to maybe help us break this down a little bit that that maybe testify to the trial. Uh, but you know that I don't see indications on the crime scene that that show that there was a lot of cleanup done. But what the what Gas did point out was that there was blood on the cabinet, the cabinet doors under the sink where cleaning supplies were kept. And I think what could have happened is if someone, it wouldn't take a super high level of, of sophistication, but if someone was wearing shoes, stepped in blood, and stepped across that linoleum floor in the in the kitchen, that were that would leave very clear footprints. You know, like like you could actually see the tread of the shoe. That maybe they they grab some cleaning supplies and clean that up, whereas in the carpet and other areas, obviously there was you're not going to be able to get a footprint off of those. Donna says, if Lloyd grabbed a banana from the new bunch, why on earth would he put the remaining bunch back on the floor? He would have left them on the counter. Probably, unless he just walked by and just and just yanked one off. You know, what I mean, like didn't pick the bunch up, but just he just reached down and grabbed a banana. And the other thing that we're not we haven't really considered is. We're assuming that those groceries were on the floor, or the bananas were on the floor. This is a violent attack that went right past that area. There's a possibility that those bananas were on the credenza, and during the attack, they fell down into the bag that was sitting on the floor. You know, so they could have been taken taken out and then put back. And again, that the, uh, much like mu- a lot of this crime scene documentation, we're left with a lot of questions because. We didn't have um, proper documentation of the crime scene. You know, we don't know if there's a banana peel. In the trash, we don't know if there were other bananas anywhere in the house. Uh, one listener pointed out that this this is a, a puzzle that could have been put back together at the time of the crime scene had the crime scene investigators thought about it. Of course, they had no way of knowing that Lloyd had uh, – I, I don't really fault them for this. They had no way of knowing at that point that Lloyd had banana in his stomach. But one listener suggested we should look at the receipt to find out – how many pounds of bananas were purchased because you know when you buy bananas they weigh them and then they could take the bananas and weigh the bananas and see how much they weigh now to see if any are missing and so what i'm kind of hoping for and I, I i mean i'm still researching for this week's episode but i'm still searching and searching to find any information we can find on that receipt because i thought we can we can at least get a pretty good estimate if we can look at that bunch of bananas and see how many are there and about what size they are and weigh them and then compare them to the receipt to see how many pounds of bananas there were when they were originally purchased. So we've got a, a a lot of work left to do as this case is super baffling. It's the most complicated, puzzling case that I've ever come across. But what I'm really excited is I feel like a case that seemed impossible to gain any traction on whatsoever, I'm just through the the recording of this follow up episode and, and and hearing the things listeners have already thought of. I think that if there is ever a possibility of us figuring out what happened here, that uh, that it's it's going to happen because of all of you, all of you in the audience that are helping and participating, which is exactly why Allison Clayton brought this case to us because it's going to take an army to figure out what happened to Lloyd Magnus Courtney. 
Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedIntandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice. the tea. Oh, that's for me, thanks. And the fish fingers. Me, please. Over here, you two. Lift. Dobby's restaurants have great deals on lots of tasty products. That's it. Mind your backs, please. <laughs> Making them feel even greater. Left a bit careful of that. So kids' meals feel larger than dining tables. Set it down gently, gently. Whoa. <gasps> Find great value every day in store, like kids eat free. After all, spring's a big deal at Dobby's garden centres. Anything else? Have you got a bigger fork?